At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, October the 15th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you can show up a podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram. Talking Mets No G, and I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network, as well as RisingApple.com. I want to thank them for their support of this program. Welcome in to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. I got a two-parter for you guys today. You're going to hear from me over the first half of the show, and then in the second half, I'm going to have a guest co-host, a friend of mine, longtime friend, met him back in the early days when he was... Uh, running a very popular blog at the beginning of the internet, really, the Cranepool Society, Steve Keen. Doesn't blog anymore on Twitter, big Mets fan, uh, a good friend. So uh, throughout the winter, as we did last year, we had the panel. I'd like to bring in a guest to co-host. You know, maybe it's uh, another blogger and maybe another radio host, like our friend Anthony Rivera. Sometimes it's just a panel of fans. Steve's a good friend. We used to co-host a podcast that had some cachet called the Sports Media Watchdog. We did it. For a couple of years, as I was in transition, going from, you know, all sports and my uh, ESPN uh, radio days to figuring out what I wanted to really do when it came to this business, you know, long term before I got into this whole Mets thing. And, uh, you know, Steve had, you know, we had a great podcast. We just put, talked about sports and media, mainly New York topics at hand. You know, I even remember that we uh, we had a show about the Hurricane Sandy. I mean, it was it was a fun show, you know, and I, I miss him as a co-host. Uh, week in and week out. I always thought it was fun uh, how we did things. So we're going to bring him back. And uh, if it goes well, maybe we'll do more. So Steve and I are just going to riff. We're going to riff about everything Mets. It's not an interview. It's just two guys talking. So you'll get that in the back half of the show. But here's where I'm going to start out with, uh, because it's not really a newsy week in Mets land. It's actually quite quiet. And I think when 
you know, the biggest news coming out is really Steve Cohen telling everybody for the billionth time that he's tired of people being able to get a good muffler around City Field and how horrible the atmosphere around City Field is, which we knew, and how his goal is to not only get this Mets thing right, but build around the stadium. These are things that should be music to your ears. Get to that in a minute or two. But, uh, you know, not exactly 911 emergency news regarding the Mets, which I after the wild end of the season with Buck being fired and the Stearns press conference to introduce David Stearns and then the surprise uh, resignation of Billy Epler. We haven't heard anything about that further, which tells you how buttoned up the Mets are top down. It's, a, it's bad for the show, bad for content, good for an organization, very important for an organization. So not the newsiest of news weeks, but if I had told you back in spring training that the week of uh, you know somewhere between October 8th and October 15th, Tommy Pham would be winning a ball game, hitting a home run, and that Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer were scheduled to start games during the week of October the 15th, you would say, hey, listen, exactly how it was written up in the winter, right? Even if that was after Edwin Diaz crumpled on the mound and and hurt his knee. But alas, they're going to be doing it for other organizations as the D-backs play the Phillies. And uh, the Astros take, uh, you know, it's an old Texas ALCS. The Astros take on the Texas Rangers. Uh, Houston versus Dallas. And and look, we got a couple of things to dive into. Uh, talk about the playoffs and the playoff format. I'll get into that. Carlos Beltran's name came up again. I thought Andy Martino wrote a very interesting piece over at SNY uh, regarding the Mets front office and how Beltran potentially should be looked at as, uh, you know, a, a manager. We're back to where the full circle was four years ago. The Phillies, as you heard on the way in, seem to... Though the Mets are not a factor, seem to still remember the Mets. We'll talk about that, and uh, you know, of course, we'll uh, we'll probably get into a, a bunch of other stuff. And you know, there's always something here as we riff a little bit. You know, this is one of those weeks where I could really freelance in the open and 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 shoot through a bunch of topics. So you heard, and and I and I continue to make this point because I'm not sure. Maybe I've beaten it to death, but I'm not sure everybody quite understands it. So. As I said many, many times, this is an organization, the New York Mets, that really has an anvil on their back. They, they play in New York, but they're the little brother to the big bad monster. Uh, in a lot of ways, the Yankees' behavior the Mets suffer from because nobody really could argue with the pinstripes and the history and the tradition and the you know everything that George Steinbrenner built with money going back to the 70s, as much as it's off-putting for the entire sport— and has really been the the agent that started the fire. Good for the Players Association, but started the fire of spending. And a league that, back when I grew up in the 80s, you didn't look at the top five payrolls. It became somewhat of a conversation in the 90s, especially as free agency exploded post-collusion. But you never talked about it. You know, the Oakland Athletics had one of the top payrolls in the late 80s. And, and now it's a market that will cease to exist in a couple of years, mainly because they can't keep up with the spending. They have, the, you know, the least amount of spending. We're at the bottom of the league, depending on, you know, who's fighting them out there. It's them this year uh, in spending. So as things began to develop and the Yankees and the Red Sox were the big spenders and, and the Mets really were in the middle. They were criticized by their fan base for not spending like the Yankees and then it almost feels like, especially when the Wilpons were playing ball with the commissioner's office for a variety of reasons, uh, they it was frowned upon that despite the fact that they were in New York, that 
you know, if the Mets tried to act like a New York team or or did some of the same or flex some of the same financial prowess as the Yankees, it was frowned upon. And then after all these years, the Wilpons, again, play by the rules, not going over slot in the draft, keeping payroll at a certain uh, level. They had to financially, but even if they think they had the extra money, it was they were never going to be the one to set payroll records for the most part. You know, they, a couple of times they dived into that with the Beltron contract and Piazza back in the late 90s. But even back then, Nelson Doubleday was still around, not for Beltron, but for Piazza. Very rarely under Wilpon ownership, especially post-Madoff, they weren't able to, would they get into the deep end of the pool financially. And then Steve Cohen comes on and it changes. And, you know, you are going to be, as a Mets fan, although you you wake up and you look negatively about the franchise and Charlie Brown with the football and, you know, basically always feel like you're the victim of, you know, when is the baseball gods going to give us a break? When is that deal in the 10th inning of game six going to run out? You know, when can we not be Charlie Brown in the football? The rest of the league doesn't always look at you like that. They do take pleasure in your Charlie Brown narrative. They do take pleasure in the in the, the pain and the near misses. But deep down, they're afraid. They're afraid of the Mets. They're afraid of Steve Cohen. They know when the Mets, and I believe it'd be really hard not to get this right, even for a short period with the kind of money they have to spend. And they have a top executive now. You know, they got everything really that they could possibly want. They finally got the executive that everybody says they should have gotten. They've got an owner who has largesse and is willing to spend. They have a decent core. And here you have the Philadelphia Phillies who just toppled the Braves. A far more, in my opinion, obnoxious team at times than the New York Mets. And the fan base that's far more obnoxious than anything the New York Mets fans could produce. They just toppled them. And what are they doing in the clubhouse? They're having fun. They're spraying champagne. You know, they hopefully, you know, earmuffs going in. Hopefully that the four-letter bad words you didn't hear, they were bleeped out on that on that clip. That's why I played it. But here they are. They're saying, blank the Braves. Blank everybody else that we're going to play next. And, oh, by the way the Mets. So there you go. The Mets weren't even a factor on the whole thing. But of course, there's probably a little animosity because here they are, the Phillies and Dombrowski, Hall of Fame executive, building up this franchise. And they've really been overlooked in the division. You know, it's always been the Braves and the Mets. And oh yeah, the Phillies are there. And the Phillies have quietly, you know, they went to the, they won a pennant last year, quietly have been uh, consistently 87, 88 to 90 win team, solid team, maybe lacking in a few ways, maybe not the best regular seasons. And I think that's where the whole debate about the playoffs comes into play. But, um, you know, here they are, and they're like, we want respect. So what do they do? They try to tear down the mats. So ultimately, it's a reminder to everybody that's listening that this isn't easy. The whole world doesn't want to see the Mets win. Nobody wants to see Steve Cohen win. That's like... That's like back in the days of Rockefeller, where Rockefeller would win the lottery. Who wants to see Rockefeller win the lottery? Who wants to see the rich get richer? Who wants to see a, a guy who's on the Forbes wealthiest people in the world? Who, who do they? Who do they? Do they? Do you want them to have more accolades and win a World Series, and all of a sudden have his front office and his methods being written about potentially? You know, because the media is always a front runner. They may hate him now, but they're always a front runner. And, you know, you have this investigation, like I said last week, uh, Major League Baseball acting like the mob, just reminding you who's in charge. And if you rattle cages and don't play in the good old boys network, what could happen? We'll see how Cohen reacts to that. But if you listen to Cohen during that panel about sports ownership that Neil Best and some others, Neil Best, the Newsday, and some others reported on this week, Cohen is committed to getting this right. And he's committed to building around the ballpark. I mean, ultimately, 
I know, and I've said this a million times, I'm sorry if I'm repeating it, but if you're new, you're hearing it for the first time, one of the things Cohen has noticed taking over the Mets is that they're really not built for big money sponsorships and corporations and Wall Street money. Uh, I think part of it is the the brand. The brand has always been a, you know, little brother, uh, man of the people, you know, brand. Nothing wrong with that. You know, we love, I think as Mets fans, this whole the Mets are an approachable team. The Mets are a team of the community, a diverse community in Queens, where the Yankees are more Rockefeller and Standard Oil and have the pinstripes and the stuffiness and the transition and the tradition, not the transition, the tra- tradition. I mean, I saw an ad for the uh, Yankees games on Queens Boulevard, and there was a Mets ad not too far down the road on Queens Boulevard recently, and, and you know, the Mets ad is in Spanish, makes sense in that area. Um, and it's, you know, they're promoting, you know, the Mets and some beer. I can't remember if it was Modelo or whatever it may be. I think it was Modelo. But it was an ad promoting the Mets and, and obviously, uh, you know, alcoholic beverage. And it was basically catered to the market, that, that Elmhurst-type area over there where I was driving. And then, you know, really right there was a Yankee ad in English and talking about come to the ballpark because look at the – uh, the tradition, basically the stadium and, and Monument Park and, and all the things that you would expect the Yankees to tap. Different teams. And now you got Cohen coming in saying, hey, you know, I get that, but I need some Wall Street money. I need some big dollars coming in because that's how we're going to build this team and grow. That's how I'm going to get people to invest in things I need to invest and be want to be part of this thing. Take all the good, all the blue collar, all the slice of New York that this team is about and and dress it up with some diamonds, you know, basically. So uh, I think that's where Cohen's going. I think that's where the surrounding area could be. You know, I remember going, and I've told you guys this, I went to see the Pirates play, oh, about 10 years ago uh, in Pittsburgh. I think they were playing the Red Sox late season in, in a late September. Uh, and, and they were actually, I think that was 2013 or 2014. Um, they actually were heading to the playoffs. So it was a nice crowd. And the area, if you walk over the Clemente Bridge in this little, like, village right in front of the ballpark with bars and stuff, was really cool. And I kept saying, you know, there's nothing like this at City Field. You know, you either park and walk through the lot where you could tailgate, you could get off the 7 Line or, uh, you know, the Long Island Railroad, but you're going to just walk across the, the plank there, it's almost like, and you go into the ballpark. You know, maybe there's some vendors selling shirts and pretzels and things like that, but there's nothing. And they had McFadden's for a while, but... A bar or a restaurant can't survive in an area that doesn't get anything but ballpark traffic. You know, that's a seasonal business. It's just it's hard in the best of times, and the inflationary times we're in now, it's even harder. So, you know, I think ultimately Steve Cohen has told you that to get this right, getting this right is not just about building it sustainably with David Stearns on the field, but building it as a jewel of a of sports franchise off the field. That's why you see the renditions with the soccer stadium, which would really tie in well to a very popular world sport in a diverse community like Queens. A lot of, you know, probably more soccer fans than baseball fans if I had to just take it in informal, unscientific poll. You know, know, casino, look, there's all those sins that people like to try to profit on, you know, alcohol, tobacco, uh, you know, gambling, all of them are bad, and and obviously gambling could lead to some terrible things, but out of all the sins, it might be the least of the sinful of all the sins that you could tax and and be involved with, so I'll leave it at that before I get myself in trouble over there, so so definitely that's something that came away, Cohen's commitment, and and despite the fact that MLB is, you know, basically charging the headquarters a couple of weeks ago, uh, like a bunch of FBI agents trying to intimidate their their potential uh, nemesis, 
you know, he's not backing down, and we'll see. You know, this winter will be very interesting. Quiet right now. It's almost the quiet before the storm. Uh, no word on the manager. No word on a GM. No word on where the direction is. David Stearns is probably working 24-7 at this point, but I'm sure some stuff will come out. And I'm not even sure how many leaks. You know, Martino has always been one of the best at providing information and context to how the Mets look at things with the change. And that was going back to even prior to Billy Epler. I wonder with the changes with Stearns coming in and with Epler leaving and depending on how those relationships were built under what regime, assuming they don't come from the owner. Uh, you, it'd be, it might be interesting to see who can report and give some insider context because when you don't have any insider information and when you don't have a responsible reporter that could be somewhat of the mouthpiece about the team's direction, you start to have reporters that are going to speculate by speaking to outsiders who kind of know what's going on or based on their position in the game could say, well, this is what I could see the Mets doing. And then that creates narratives and maybe disinformation, even though that's not the intent. And then you have a, a fan base that gets taken into a wild direction. So that's the market we live in. That's the world we live in. Now, as far as the manager, uh, you know, going back to Martino, very interesting piece that he uh, wrote over at uh, SNY.TV, uh, which was about uh, Carlos Beltran and perhaps how Carlos Beltran, the guy that had the job and then didn't for something that happened years before when he was still a player, can be important to a Mets front office that lacks diversity. And when he talks about lacking diversity, it's not in the sense of just different nationalities and races and and sexes and stuff like that. It's really the type of people that the Mets have in their front office. And I think because Andy's been writing a piece, uh, or not a piece, a book about the Yankees and about Brian Cashman's run as general manager, He's had a lot of exposure to people around the Yankees, and he talks about how the Yankees' front office is well-rounded. They got uh, former players like Tim Nairing and Nick Swisher and uh, longtime old-school executives like Brian Sabin and even Omar Minaya was there. And the Mets, who really, a lot of these former Mets like Al Leiter that were in Brody and David Wright, I know, is there, but I think he's more of an, an honorary PR piece. You know, Billy Epler and I know this as well, Billy Epler has really frowned upon former players of the Mets even really getting involved. And you look at the Mets front office, they don't really have anymore the Manias or the Allard Bears or these guys that they had in Brody Van Wagenen's cabinet, which which is really what I liked. You know, When Brody was here, knowing that he didn't have the amount of experience that other front office executives had, he was an agent, uh, and I, he was brought on because basically owners could work with him and and I think they thought as an agent that he could get them some good uh, deals at a good price knowing how to navigate the other side of the table but he had Omar Minaya and Allard Baird and guys like that uh, in his cabinet and and I think not having that and not having that former player that could give you some of the nuance that yeah you need a player that could explain analytics and he you know when Martino talks about how good Terry Collins has talked to, and Terry Collins is, is a big Beltron supporter. Uh, you know, Beltron loves Collins for how he was treated as he became a compromised player on the way back from a very serious knee injury. So they have this connection, those two guys. Um, you know, how Beltron can disseminate the information from analytics, but more importantly, 
it's that empathy, the understanding of the plight that these guys that he'd be managing, what they go through, all the fears and the paranoias and the highs and the lows. And I think the amount of respect that a Beltran will get in that clubhouse. Uh, and before I make my point, let's just listen real quick. This was Francisco Lindor. I think it was when he finally hit 2020 or something along those lines. One of the benchmarks that, you know, haven't been done in a while. It was brought up to Beltran was the last one. Listen to what Lindor had to say uh, about this. Where that you're at to have 2020 since uh, 2008, Beltran 2008? Um, no, I, I mean, I was Bogo about made that aware after the game. Um, I, I thought I had like two more to get to 20. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's really cool whenever um, I get to be next to one of my, my role models growing up, someone I try to be like, um, it's special for sure. So I'm, I'm blessed to be in this position. Talk about, you know, obviously you, you talked about a guy that he has respect for, but think about Beltran as a player. Think about the vast experience he has, unlike other... Beltran is, is a Hall of Famer. You know, we'll see how that works out on the ballots and all that stuff, you know, now that, you know, he's, you know, potentially going to be be up for, for election here. Let's see how he's treated with sign stealing and all that stuff. But Beltran is a Hall of Famer. So you have a Hall of Fame player, and often those players, they have a hard time relating, especially as they try to work on going back into the game from a, a different way. You have to pay your dues. One of the things that everyone always, I remember, respect about a Ryan Sandberg is how he rode the buses in the minor leagues. Now, he didn't turn out to be a great manager or even a very good manager in Philadelphia, but he worked his way up through the minor league system. Gary Carter did that, God rest his soul, for a little bit. But when Gary Carter needed to be in Binghamton and continue to work up the system, like guys like Wally Backman were doing, like a, like a Ryan Sandberg did, you know, he wasn't, and he said this, and, and, and I think I played the clip when uh, on my show when Gary came on with me. Binghamton, New York wasn't for him. You know, he was fine when he was Port St. Lucie and he was close to home and he was in Florida. You know, he wanted to be a major league manager and he wanted it now. And, and it started a controversy because Willie Randolph was firmly ensconced in that position. The Mets were coming off a, a game seven and winning the division and winning 97 games. So who the hell wants to hear what Gary Carter wants as a manager? Wound up managing the Ducks and then got sick and we know the, the end of that. But, you know, going through that process and, and, and going through the system. Now, Beltran hasn't done that. Beltron is more modern because now the modern manager is working through the front office, understanding the front office, understanding how the front office makes decisions and the information that they send down to the field. How can we disseminate that for the players without overloading them? And I think the Mets have been a crash course in how not to implement analytics with the big league club because I think it's had a negative impact um, in a lot of ways, a lot in 2021, I think a little bit this year, you know, I know in 2022, you know, some of the moves they made at the deadline were analytical based, you know, how they built the DH spot off of platoon splits and, you know. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work 
for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Essentially bringing in guys out of the, for the bullpen, you know, marginal moves. Where Billy Upler, especially during his ten, uh, tenure, wanted to get these value moves. You know, let me give up a little to get a lot. Whether it be guys who are optionable relievers or how we approach the deadline. We talked about how that's important for them to preserve the farm system that was then. So Beltron is a guy that comes in, has had a lot of experience in the front office, was well regarded with the Yankees. That helped him get the job when he interviewed with Brody Van Wagenen and you know, basically Allard Baird and, and Omar Minaya was smitten with him after they met with him, not just meeting with him, not planning on on having him come in as as an interview for manager. But here's a guy that was the young kid not speaking English, coming from Puerto Rico, that had to go through all the crap that a young foreign-born player has to go through off the field with the language and the food and assimilating into the culture. He understands that. He was the hotshot prospect that was brought up and expected to be a savior and had to go through early ups and downs. He was a guy that was the big free agent, the guy that put on a show during the 2004 uh, National League Championship Series and and carried the Astros to the World Series with home run after home run after home run and got the big contract and was the centerpiece, the crown jewel of a New York team, a New York team expected to win given the biggest contract at that point uh, in Mets history, the biggest contract, one of the biggest contracts in big league history because he was the crown jewel, the Scott Boris client. He knows about being like that. He knows about getting hurt and having to come back and, and being that veteran that's compromised and has to adapt and adjust to that, giving up the center field position and moving to a corner. And then he was the guy on the back end of his career who was more of a mentor and a coach who didn't have that much baseball left in him. He had to accept that and accept a, a different role and did that in order to win a championship. So all those versions of Carlos Beltran, and this is exactly, if you go back and listen to my show when he was hired, why I thought the hire wasn't a bad one. Well, even though I had my doubts and I heard him in the press conference when he was introduced and Beltran never was an engaging, candid, erudite guy with the media when he played. That's a long time ago. You're talking about nearly 20 years and the guy's a lot older, a lot more mature, has had more life experiences. So, you know, maybe we could put that aside. Do I think he's going to be a guy like Buck Walter that'll be able to masterfully handle the media in the postgame? No. Do I think he's going to be bland at times and, and give you answers that you can go, eh? Yeah, I do. But ultimately, if he could get the respect of the players, manage a bullpen good enough, whatever the information that comes down from the front office, and somehow build a rapport with the media where he gives them enough so they leave him alone and give him the benefit of the doubt when times are bad, you might have your guy. Look, ultimately, when they hire a manager, and I know there was a debate uh, on Twitter this week about they should hire the GM before the manager because you want to have everybody from the top down to be in connection. And I agree with that, but David, David Stearns is running the show now. Billy Epler's gone. And whether he hires the manager first or the GM last or vice versa, it's not going to matter to me. To me, the manager is more important because the manager is going to be front-facing to the players, and the players are what matters. The GM is important in the sense where he needs to work with Stearns. Stearns is going to bring in somebody, like I said, whether he's Dartmouth, Harvard, Yale, James Click, or Clentech, or whoever. 
You're going to bring someone that's going to be his guy, that's going to think like him, act like him, and be a surrogate of him. Like, he's he's not going to bring anybody else. So as long as Stearns is there and the manager is a Stearns hire, there is no way the GM will be anybody that will be opposed to such a hire. That's my opinion. I understand the mechanics of that, but the Mets can't wait all offseason to hire a manager because I think if I'm a free agent, if I'm Otani, if I'm one of these guys coming from Japan or any American player, even if I'm signing a couple of years, to you know, and you want to take the most money, look, the Mets money talks, you know that. But I also want to know who I'm working for. Imagine, you know, especially in an environment where money is going to be available everywhere. You get offered two jobs, relatively the same money. Maybe one is slightly more than another, but not life-changing different. And all of a sudden, you know who your boss is on one, but you don't know on the other. Where are you going to go? It's pretty simple to me. You're not. So um, I think the Carlos Beltran managerial candidacy should be taken seriously. I have no idea. Just because Martino reported if the Mets are even considering it, uh, what David Stearns uh, thinks of Beltran, what's going on with Council, who it seems like is going to drag his his candidacy out a little bit. It's, it sounds like what some of the reports are is that Council wants to make sure that managers start getting their fair pay and that him being that darling star free agent manager he wants to make sure that whether he stays in Milwaukee or not that he goes out there and he you know makes the most money possible for the job he did so he could pave the way for others makes sense at that point but you know I wouldn't wait around all winter for Craig Council you know he's not Shohei Otani at this point you know he might be a very good manager but there's no Shohei Otani's of managing so um that's where I'm at it was an interesting piece about Beltron it would be very ironic as he becomes eligible for the Hall of Fame, four years almost uh, later to when he was fired, that he would be back managing the Mets with the same characteristics and qualities that we championed last time. And, you know, it'd be interesting. I don't think the sign stealing that really should be in the past. Uh, it would be interesting how that'd be viewed by the, the league. Hinch is back. Cora's back. You know, would Beltran be given a pass? I mean, he's working for the Mets, so... Anyway, uh, you know, there's that. So that's the second thing. Now, before we wrap up and take a break and and get to uh, our little guest co-host, me and Steve Keen, riffing a Mets smorgasbord, what, what the second half of the show would be, uh, let's take a listen to Bill Simmons on The Ringer as the topic of, exp- of the playoffs and how the playoffs are currently constituted was brought up. And let's hear what, uh, what Simmons has to say with the regular seasons where it's like actually the playoffs is all that matters. And the regular season is just a means to an end and nothing matters. My generation was all these records meant something during the season. It meant something to win a hundred games. It meant something to win 60 plus NBA games. Your generation is like, what happened to the playoffs? That's how we judge you. Do you guys wish it was more like the old way or the new way? I'll start with you, Danny. I don't know. I mean, things change over time. Like I think what was interesting is when I first started working here, like learned a lot more about NFL history and like the playoffs started as an accident. Like for a long time in the NFL, like the team that just won the regular season, you won the league. That's how British soccer still works. The premier league is like, there is no playoffs, just who won the regular season. And the playoffs happened as an accident almost because they had to like, let these competing leagues do it. Like the super bowl is because the AFL was playing the NFL. Right. And then they just merged. So I I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's like one thing's better. or just stuff changes over time. What do you think, Craig? I don't like the regular season. Maybe I'm 
too Gen Z here, but I, yeah, I, I'm living for the playoffs. I think baseball's way too long. I think the NBA's way too long. Records don't matter anymore. I mean, we, we look at in football, games change over years. Now it's like Kirk Cousins and Matt Stafford are going to be the leading passers in the history of the NFL when it's all said and done. So um, I wish everything was cut in half and we'd get to the playoffs a lot sooner. I liked the COVID year. I liked when baseball was shorter. I liked when basketball was shorter. I thought it was better. Less injuries, yeah, that's too. How- that's how I'm starting to drift toward because right now we're in this middle ground where they need the regular season so they can make as much money as possible. But the regular yeah. season has also been totally devalued. Like I was talking about the Dodgers, how they just get bounced in three games. And if you're a Dodger fan, you're like, why did I watch regular season? That made no sense. We just got, we just bounced. In the NFL, at least, you know, you can have kind of a mediocre regular season and still sneak in. But I do feel like with the NFL and the NBA, most of the time, the right team wins. You know, we saw Bucks Heat last year was was pretty strange, and we'll have weird football games where like a big favorite will lose. But for the most part, the right teams are always kind of around in the end. We, you know, other than Heifetz's two giant seasons that continue to, you know, are distressing and awful, and to everybody who thinks about 07 and 11. So that was Bill Simmons from The Ringer. Now, so this week. And this is what drives me crazy, and I've talked about this a lot on this show. When we don't get the results we want in society, we tend to say, okay, we need to change the rules because there's something wrong. Something either uh, is a awry, is a there was an integrity issue, uh, the, the system's broken, it always was, and this proves it. And we want to change the rules. This has been going on since the beginning of time. We never look at, well... What did those that we thought were going to win or thought were going to succeed, what did they do wrong during that time? So the big thing is the Braves get knocked out, the Dodgers get knocked out, and, you know, away you go here at this point. You know, now the the two best teams in National League got knocked out. It's because of the layoff. That's the thing, the five-day layoff. Meanwhile, I went back and just took a few random big-time teams that won championships throughout the history of baseball. 99 Yankees had about five days off between the ALCS and the World Series. The 76 Reds had about four days off. And the 1970 Orioles had about five days off between the playoffs and the World Series. Why? They swept there, or they took, you know, in a very quick way, they took their series, you know, and, and disposed of their opponent. So it, these kind of layoffs could happen. You sweep a team, you could have a three, four, five-day layoff. I don't understand why the end of the regular season to the postseason and the wild card round, why that's creating all sorts of, uh, you know, disenchantment by the fans and whatnot. Now, I understand that it's new with the expanded wild card for fans of, the, of baseball to start to see the randomness that goes into the, we call it the tournament here. We've been calling it a tournament before they expanded the, the, the playoffs. Remember that. We called it a tournament because it truly is. Whether there's one wild card or three wild cards, it's a tournament. Because you're taking the the 162 game season and you're boiling it down to seven games where anything could happen and you could basically match up your way past even the best of teams because you're just you just got to survive over the course of a week or ten days. That's really it. And now you add all these extra playoff teams, so you're seeing randomness become even more random. Remember Billy Epler? I mean, let's quote him one last time. Remember what he said when when he was talking about the largesse of Cohen and how. The Mets are putting themselves in a better position to win. Even the best teams, he said, only have about a 17 or 18% chance of winning. And he's right. Maybe, maybe 20 on the on, on the high end. So even with all the wins that the Dodgers and the Braves have had over the last couple of years, they still go into the postseason with that same 
you know, 18 to 20%. So there's an 80% chance if you're the best team in the league that your season's going to end in disappointment because winning is hard, real hard. And what the Yankees did in the 40s and the 50s and then back again in the 90s and maybe some of the uh, runs that the Orioles had, you know, they were during a time when there was less teams, less expansion, and, you know, maybe there was a way where certain smart people were all centered in a certain number of organizations. That has changed. You know, the league has opened up. There's more talent than ever across the world. There's more equity with the draft than there ever has been. You know, they put in a lottery. I think it's a little overrated, but they put in a lottery. So things are different. And by the nature of expansion, by the nature of less talent being available, um, you're creating a certain amount of randomness. You also have a balanced schedule. So depending on how things played out, you're not playing your division as much. You also could have success or a little bit less success based on your schedule. It's strength of schedule. Now, everybody gets to play everybody the same amount of times, but I think that that takes away from some of the teams that were maybe the NL Central beating up on a weak division or the NL East with some better teams top to bottom. You know, you won't have to play those teams another five or six times. You might be playing, you know, a bad team from the American League six more times instead of the Braves playing the Phillies. So naturally, that's the case. And I think that more playoffs is necessary. You're in an environment where, look, if you go back to, you know, the best team winning you want to do, because that's what analytics is all about, getting the the best outcome that data could give you. This, this is what data tells us, because everything's now about data. So you go back and you line up the two leagues, American League and National League, the best of the National League, the best of the American League after 162 games wins. You go out, you play each other. That's the best case where analytics could say, hey, the best team, whether it be the Braves or the Dodgers, and then the American League, whether it's the Orioles or or somebody else, you square off in the square off in the World Series. You had the best regular seasons. You were the two best teams, and then you get the outcome you want. But guess what? There's a number of teams, including Philadelphia fans, that were way out of the race that would have checked out on this season. Oh, probably the Fourth of July, and now they would be talking about football in Philadelphia since the Fourth of July, not baseball. And that's not the way to grow your sport. And then you could say, well, they need to get better. They need. You know, you get a team like the Braves that figures it out and wins 100 to 105 games. You could say, well, they deserve it. They should get the benefits and the spoils of victory. But you know what? It's not about, you don't grow a sport that way. Dominance doesn't grow a sport. Yes, you have, you know, dynasties like the, the, the Lakers and the Bulls and the Cowboys and the 49ers, Yankees and things like that. But, you know, those get old quick. You know, they, they're cool for about three years or four years but after a while, when the rest of the league feels like they're the Washington Generals, the Globetrotters, the fans are not, you know, there's too many things for them to do. Look, back in the 60s and 70s when there was only like, you know, a handful of channels on, on TV, no internet, you know, people were more about being out in the world than virtually being in the world. You could go to the ballpark, enjoy yourself, even without all the other stuff like the McDonald's, you know, running the bases and all that stuff. And have a good day out affordably and and root for the team, knowing that your team, maybe one day they'll be good and they'll compete for something big. But they're our boys. They're part of the community. Let's go out and support them, even though they're, you know, a 75-win team. It doesn't happen like that anymore. First, the cost, and then the, all the other options people have to spend time in entertaining themselves. And some of it's baseball-related, some of it's not. Some of it's just Taking the gambling and fantasy baseball, which is, you know, non-denominational when it comes to uh, teams, 
It's your team. So what's the solution? Well, you can tweak the postseason to give those that win the division. First, I never thought it made sense to have the third division winner have to do the wild card round. I thought that was unfair. So, uh, you know, some people have said line them up one through six and play them, you know, in a best of five in the first round, best of seven, best of seven. I can live with that. The best of five in the first round, the division winners get to play all their games at home. One and six, two and five, three and four. Maybe you do that and you could start right away. Maybe they get one day off. That eliminates the whole layoff problem. Then uh, the second thing is Bob Costas has talked about, you know, giving the first wild card an advantage, you know, have all the division winners kind of get a buy or get the time off. First wild card gets some time off. You have a quick best of three between wild cards number five and six. Then wild card number th- uh, four plays the, the winner there, and it's the best of three on their home field. Yes, that delays things until end of the week, so they'll get about a week off. But by the time a Braves team faces the Phillies, let's say, who win that wild card round, they've burned through some pitchers. They've, burnt, they've played some games. Now, you could talk about momentum, but again... Your team is lined up with your best pitchers in a lot better way, depending on how things fly, than that, than those teams are. And then you go. Now, the other part, which, you know, do you expand the wild card and do four wild cards in each division and play like a one and four, two and three, and end the season a little earlier and do that? You know, I've always talked about that. Again, that doesn't address the layoff. See, the layoff thing to me is bogus. Like, I even look at. Uh, was it Spencer Strider, who took, not a guy I love, to be honest, who kind of annoys me, but he said it best, you know, the people trying to use the playoff format to make an excuse for the results they don't like are not confronting the real issue. You're in control of your focus, your competitiveness, your energy. If having five days means you can't make the adjustment, you have nobody to blame but yourself. That is well said. That's personal accountability. That's what sports is all about. That's it. We don't have to have all this other stuff. See, I want to make my debate about the playoff format is not about making it easier for the top seeds. It's about creating more excitement and making it a little harder for the teams that don't win the division. So that all these cities, look, do I want an 80-win team in the postseason? No. So you add another wild card team. You're like, Mike, you're lowering the bar to 85 wins. Look, you're in an environment now. You don't have enough pitching. You don't. Uh, You have more uh, you're going to have more expansion. You're going to have a couple more teams. There's not enough talent to go around. All the travel, everything is going to have periods of bad baseball for a variety of reasons. You're shuttling pitcher after pitcher up and down. So, of course, when you play doubleheaders, you're never going to have your best 26 out there or 27 out there. So results are always going to be random in the regular season. You are you know, you're an 85-win team just because they won 85 games and sneak into the playoffs. They may play much better than that because they have the crux of what a championship team needs in the core of the players. Maybe they don't have the depth. Now, that's the debate. The teams that don't have the depth to get through 162 games, should they get a chance to compete in the tournament? Well, yeah. It's expensive to run a team. Not everybody can have a $300 or $350 million payroll. The teams at the top are always going to have a competitive advantage. As long as you have that inequity in without a salary cap, you're going to have to create other ran- randomness that keeps the sport alive. So the debate that a Simmons is having there about the regular season versus the postseason and all this other stuff, that's fine. The regular season, to me, is a warm-up where you figure out who the top six teams are, and then you rack and stack them, and you go have your tournament. You know, there's no, you still get a banner for winning the division. You still have all those memories. It's still fun to go to the ballpark and see Pete Alonso with 45 home runs or see Acuna do what he did and 
you know, there's still something to root for. It's different. You're not living and dying on every pitch. I know that everyone talks about those great pennant races. You know, one of the last great ones was in 93 with the Giants and the Braves. Great pennant race. But did, can you honestly say the Giants finishing second were not an equal to Braves? It would have been great to see those guys face off in the postseason in a seven-game series. Great. It might have been a classic series. But you you missed out on that because there was only a division winner. There was no wild card at that point. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff to riff on here on this Sunday, you know, not a newsiest of news week, but some interesting things for us to comment on. Love to hear from you. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Some of your thoughts about Carlos Beltran, your thoughts on the postseason, and, and some of my ideas that improve it. Bob Costas with uh, Heyman and, uh, and Sherman basically feels the format with wild card, number one wild card, getting a couple of days off, lets the, the five and six play each other and then play, puts some, you know, gets some advantage to having a better record and uh, give some advantage to having a better record and then still has the randomness of the wild card round. I have to agree with him. I don't know. You know, I, I didn't think going in I'd agree with Costas, but I agree with Costas. It's actually a better idea than me shortening the regular season and, and adding a wild card and, and using some of the money on postseason that would come from that to make up for the lost gate. But, you know, I'm not there in the financial meetings. I'm sure that wouldn't go over well with the, 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 the teams that lose eight gate dates or four, you know, four road, four home, four gate dates probably at that point. So... Anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back, part two, hour two, co-hosting with me as we're going to riff on all Mets topics, probably remember some of our times together and some of the fun stuff we did as we grew up in the Mets blogosphere together. Steve King, Cranepool Society, at Cranepool on Twitter, is going to be joining me. He's going to be co-hosting the second half of the show with me, and I'm sure we'll talk about anything and everything, and we're not going to stay focused, and we're going to bounce around. We're going to drive you bananas, but here's what I can promise. We're going to have a lot of fun. You're listening to the Talking Mets Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.